I've reported other people's stories for a long time, confronting people in power. But behind this broadcast voice, I've hidden my greatest secret. I was in an abusive marriage. It lasted a year, but it changed my life. Part of me always blamed myself for what happened, and I've lived with the shame. So many of us live like this. It's time we change that. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. Welcome to Paradise is my story. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This is White Coat Black Art. In Canada, some healthcare crises like ER closures are recent. The crisis involving eating disorders is much more chronic, though no less urgent. Roughly a million Canadians have been diagnosed with an eating disorder. Of those, as many as 15% will die because of it. That's according to the National Initiative for Eating Disorders, or NIAID. And in 2022, the Canadian Institute for Health Information reported that the pandemic saw a greater than 50% jump in hospitalizations for eating disorders among girls ages 10 to 17. The problem may be well known, yet access to treatment in Canada has been lacking for decades. Recently, I traveled to Winnipeg to meet a woman who has spent many years fighting for better treatment for Canadians with eating disorders. And as you'll find out, she has a personal stake. This woman here, Michelle Clark, she uh, was a communications writer for the government. And uh, she, when Alyssa died, she very kindly called me up and she said, I want to do something. I'd like to do a painting of Alyssa. And I said, well... She said, is there anything I need to know? I said, she never smiled. She never smiled. And she, so she said, I'll make sure she's not smiling. And she took, I sent her the pictures. Elaine Stevenson grabs that framed sketch of her late daughter, Alyssa, and holds it tightly. As Elaine said, in the sketch, Alyssa isn't smiling. Neither is Elaine. Alyssa, who had an eating disorder, died in 2002. She was 24. Elaine still fights the fight in her daughter's memory. Hi, my name is Elaine Stevenson. I'm the co-founder of the Alyssa Stevenson Eating Disorder Memorial Trust. I've been an advocate uh, for eating disorder services both in Manitoba and across the country for over 33 years. Elaine remains committed to fighting for better treatment for people with eating disorders. She does that in large part by telling Alyssa's story in all of its painful details. Elaine Stevenson, welcome to Ico Blacker. Thank you so very much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. I know it's probably at times hard to talk about this, but I think it's important to remember that your memorial trust is in the name of your daughter, Alyssa Stevenson. And I want I want to ask you, what do you want the people who are listening to us right now to know about your late daughter, Alyssa? Oh, she was just such a, a wonderful, free spirit, very intelligent young woman. Um, unfortunately, our daughter suffered trauma on two occasions throughout her short life. She was 24 years when she died, and uh, she was never able to recover from that trauma, um, some details of which that we did not find out until after her death. It was quite shocking and um, very heartbreaking, and I really do feel in that genre that it's very important for there to be more PTSD 
uh, measures and treatments incorporated into eating disorder treatment because there are so many people with eating disorders that have suffered some form of trauma. And all the other things were all the other treatments, it was no disrespect to any of the doctors or the nurses, they weren't working. And I think is she just couldn't ever let that go and we needed some experts in trauma to deal with it. Are you able to say anything about the kind of trauma she experienced? Um, no, because you know what? I, I'm, I'm respecting Alyssa's wishes um, because Alyssa never shared that publicly, but um, it was very traumatic and at a young age and again in her teens, and she just couldn't recover from it. And uh, we always suspected that something had happened, but we never could get the details until after her death. And since she chose during her life to not share that information, I want to be respectful of Alyssa's wishes. And we will do that. So this story began and your advocacy began before she died. When Alyssa was struggling with her eating disorder back in the 1990s, what help was actually available out there for adolescents with eating disorders? Not very much at all. There was no child and adolescent treatment program at the time. We went through doctors and doctors, um, again, no disrespect to the doctors, but trying to find someone who had an expertise in eating disorders. I did take Alyssa to her local pediatrician and it was, you know, he a very good doctor, but he thought that her weight was in was in a normal weight range, and that I was perhaps overreacting. And I knew in my heart that I wasn't. And so I came out of that meeting um, and being very upset. And I called around friends, and I said, you know, she she just seems to the other doctors we have to reco- be recoiling away from male doctors. I need her to try and get her into a female doctor. And uh, with help, I was able to get her into one. And uh, she did everything she could. She stuck with us even into her adults to save her life. But um, unfortunately, uh, we couldn't do it. I I thought, well, I'm going to get Alyssa better and I'm going to save her life. And really, it that wasn't in hindsight, a gift that I had to give. God, I wish I could have. But I didn't have that power to make her well again. It's every parent's nightmare. It is a nightmare. You know, it's just a nightmare, you know. Yeah, it was, was tough. and uh, But she was amazing. We did a three-part series uh, on TV. We went on radio shows together, and uh, we spoke at conferences together. And uh, she would get up there and tell what, what she thought, that life wasn't like those nice little trays that they bring you in the hospital, that that didn't help her. Like, she, she didn't know what normal was. You you mentioned that she had suffered from a whole host of medical problems. Oh God, she, she her the bone density was very very poor. Um, Alyssa was also a cutter. She would cut herself. She um, she engaged in self harm. She eventually got into drugs. Um, n- not the whole way, thank God. But I mean, so you know, we had someone that was very, very ill, um, and we did whatever we could. I mean, I, I, I will never be able to thank Alyssa's doctor enough for 
what she went through, even pushing the envelope with other administrators to get her into certain programs. And, and when she was an adult, that was a big deal because Alyssa's doctor was a pediatrician and uh, she did not do well on the uh, adult side and was, was brutal. Um, but we didn't get the Adolescent Day Treatment Center until um, a friend of mine and, and other parents, we got together and formed the Eating Disorders Association of Manitoba. We knew the first thing we could do was to try and get services improved for the adolescents and their youth. And so we worked very hard with um, not with the health care providers and also with the government at the time to get a program funded and up and going. And um, I have to say on the whole, that was a pretty positive experience. It's not like that anymore. They, you, you make appointments to meet with ministers and, um, and some are very nice and they're, you know, they're all really nice, but they, they uh, nod their heads and they look at all the, you, you know, I present all the issues and I also go with recommendations. I never go with just what's wrong. This is how I think you could fix it. But you get the nods, but you don't get any action. You know, before we talk about some of the problems uh, that uh, when it comes to, to early diagnosis and, and, and effective treatment of people with eating disorders, you had success early on in your advocacy work, and you're proud of that. I'm still I'm proud of the work I do every day. What, what do you think you learned from the experience of watching your daughter go through uh, her, her struggles with eating disorders that, that made you a better advocate for, for care? Um, well, I guess some of the ways, not always, she would meet incredibly kind and compassionate doctors at emergency room. We took her there many times. I can't tell you how many times, how many New Year's Eves. How many, it seemed around holidays, it seemed to exacerbate the situation and she would have a breakdown or she would really deteriorate and we'd take her in. But um, one of the issues that really concerned me was the lack of knowledge or understanding sometimes by the people we met in Emerge and the judgment and lack of wanting to help someone with a mental illness. And uh, that that was very frustrating to me. Uh, we had one emergency room doctor tell her that she was not allowed to come back to uh, Emerge ever again unless she was willing to get help. And uh, and so I heard this, and I, I, you know, and I asked Liz to sit down. So I talked to him, and I said, "What are you, what are you doing? Like, we can come here as often as we want to. This is a serious issue. You haven't even checked her heart yet. You haven't pulled blood for electrolytes. You haven't, like, what? Because she's frightened of you. I'd be frightened of you if you came at me like that too. You know. So I have to say, those were rare instances." And on, 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 on the whole, we met some very kind and compassionate people. But I also found that even the night that Alyssa passed away and we were in the intensive care unit, where I just wanted to keep talking to Alyssa and urge her to hang on and keep fighting, and we were there to support her. And I had to ask questions, uh, answer questions on why does she have no teeth? Why does she have lanugo? Why, like questions that if you knew about eating disorders you, from, from medical staff. And and that that concerned me because I thought, which I did, I answered the questions, but I just wanted to be a mom. I didn't want to, I don't know everything. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an expert in eating disorders. But 
I just was shocked. At, like, I, I became fearful at some of the questions I was being asked. These are basic they 101. Didn't, they didn't have basic knowledge of, of, what, of uh, all no, of the complications and secondary effects of eating disorders. No. And I just was, I was scared that night, very scared. And, uh, and I just thought she could fight it, but she couldn't. I'm so sorry. You said that Alyssa herself was an advocate. She was. She went with me to every, we, we were the, we did it together. And I was so proud of her when she spoke, when she got up and spoke to the Lions Conference or Eating Disorder Conference. She, she was very vocal about her, an eating disorder and, um, and how kids at school would even say to her, geez, I wish I could be anorexic for a few days so I'll look really good for grad and stuff like that. And see, back then, in the early 1990s um, and later on in the 90s, it was, it was cool. You accomplished things and you felt as if you were making a difference. And I want to ask you, when did you feel that there was a certain pointlessness to to the advocacy that you would get a hearing but but not get any any action or accountability. Well, I guess I like to look at views positive things positively, and um, although the lack of action and the lack of funding um, across the country and here in Manitoba has been absolutely dismal, um, I'm not going to give up. And when I feel down and I feel frustrated, I have my wonderful husband, who's the other co-founder of Alyssa's Foundation. And then I have wonderful people like the National Eating Disorder Center and the people at need that I'm very close to those people across Canada. And and we're experiencing the same things, but we're determined, take a deep breath and away we go back again. But I don't, I won't give up because I know in my heart that it's the right thing to do. And if I listened to all the people that told me, no, you can't do this, and no, it's never going to happen, well, we've gotten some things to happen, so I'm not giving up. That Elaine Stevenson is not giving up has not gone unnoticed. For her tireless advocacy for children, youth, and adults with eating disorders, last year she was selected for the Order of Manitoba. In October, the new NDP government in Manitoba, led by Premier Wab Canoe, assumed office. In a text, Elaine told us she's looking forward to working with the new provincial government on reducing wait lists and faster access to treatment. We'll be right back. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, I'm in Winnipeg to meet some of the people who are trying to improve things for those with eating disorders. For decades, Elaine Stevenson has argued for comprehensive treatment programs. A 10-minute drive from where she lives, there's a clinic Elaine's advocacy helped create that's trying to meet the challenge. So we're entering our eating disorder program space. This is the home of the Provincial Eating Disorder Prevention and Recovery Program. It's part of the Women's Health Clinic, a not-for-profit community health clinic located in Winnipeg. 
The clinic offers a community-based treatment program that serves women, men, trans, and non-binary adults who have eating disorders but are considered stable from the medical point of view. Services offered here include assessment and treatment. Hi, my name is Julia Clausen. I'm a counselor with the Women's Health Clinic's Provincial Eating Disorder Prevention and Recovery Program, which is where we are today. Um, and I'm a counselor in the program, and so I work with clients individually as well as uh, facilitate group. A social worker by training, Julia helps clients give voice to difficult emotions that accompany eating disorders. Like Elaine Stevenson, Julia has a personal stake in this. She was once a client here. First of all, Julia, welcome to Ico Blacker. Thank you for having me. What was it about this place that made you want to work here? Mm. I have, uh, just as a, I, I think a person with lived experience, right? I think we can all connect to the impacts of diet culture in different ways um, as it really impacts and, and, and touches everyone, right? It can really inform how we see ourselves. So um, as someone who has, you know, access services here many years ago, um, I knew that it was a welcoming environment and it, the philosophies really aligned with my, uh, my perspective and view. And so I really wanted to be part of that work. Is it something that you talk about? I know you've written about it, about your own lived experience. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I try to uh, be mindful how I talk about it, actually, because I think historically, um, the 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 messages or the narratives that we think of um, when we think about eating disorders are often of people who look like me, um, and I think that that's actually really harmful because the experiences of you know often thin white cis females, young, able-bodied, non-disabled, that's been the story that's been centered, and that's really invalidating and harmful when really um, disordered eating impacts so many people and actually, um, you know, disproportionately impacts people who have a targeted identity. So I think, um, well, it's great when folks can connect through their lived experiences like myself, but I think it's really important to also not center that in these conversations because that story has been told historically. We need to shift uh, the focus. What's the first assessment like? What's the first encounter like oh. with a potential, a client or a potential client? Yeah. So we are a self-referral uh, organization, so anybody can just call us and reach out. Um, sometimes people are referred to their primary health care providers, but mostly people just call, have some questions. So they would have a, a phone conversation with our program assistant um, just to get some more information. And then they would be uh, scheduled for uh, an assessment with our nurse practitioner, sometimes our social worker. And so they would do a more thorough um, assessment just to get a better picture. And again, we're looking for things like capturing what's the picture at the moment um, and then from there on we're connecting uh, to the next phase which would be completing our skills for recovery group so we're offering people our workshops our skills group as they wait to begin treatment in the program where do you come in mm -hmm. yeah so they complete that assessment if they are deemed uh, a good fit and they're wanting to move forward in the program then they uh, sign up for again our skills for recovery workshop series which is focused on eating disorder recovery but more so looking at skills development and the idea is this is a six-week group it gives them a flavor for what the commitment is to our program as well it gives them a set of skills to use while they're on the waitlist so I would facilitate at, or another counselor would facilitate that 
group. And then once they are into our program, I would see them uh, or one of the other counselors for individual therapy sessions, counseling sessions. So that's starting bi-weekly um, as well as dietitian sessions bi-weekly and then uh, attending a group, a two and a half hour group every week. And that's kind of the commitment that they move through those months. So that's a lot. Let's break them down. What kinds of skills are you are, are you teaching in the six-week program? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a lot of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, so really looking at um, thoughts and thought patterns that may not be serving us and looking to identify them, a lot of creating awareness, a lot of working uh, at cultivating mindfulness. We do mindfulness practices, uh, looking at radical acceptance, looking at grounding skills. So it's just really trying to, the aim is to equip people to be able to connect to these skills in their toolkit as they delve into the deeper work um, so that they have these things accessible to them. So I already know that you don't define success by weight. Mm -hmm. So what is success when you connect with a client? That's really a question for the individual. And I think that's where um, another part of our perspective is really centering around uh, individual as the expert. And so really identifying and getting curious around what are your values? What does this word recovery, does that even fit for you? Do you like that word? Is there something else we could use? What would it look like if you kind of came out of the program and feel like I got got what I came for? What would that actually be? So I think it's really... um, you know, it's really nuanced and it, there's not a concrete answer when we look at success. How many clients do you have? Not you personally, but the, but the Yeah, clinic. the program. So um, last year, our active caseload was 140 participants in the program. So it would be around that as well. We just haven't captured those stats yet for the year, but it's around 140. Do you have a wait list? Yes. Yeah. Currently, it's about a 12-month wait list. <sighs> Yeah, yeah. Through no fault of your own. <laughs> no, I, seriously. It's, yeah. It's, that, this is your cue to address the system issues. There are absolutely system issues. Um, we've had a wait list, you know, since kind of starting. However, definitely over time and through the pandemic, certainly needs increased. And so that contributed to increasing our wait list. Um, as well, we tried to be more responsive and adaptive and allow folks to stay in our program a bit longer. So typically they move through in 12 to 18 months through all the treatment groups. Um, and that sort of extended a bit. So for those kind of compounding factors, it's increased our wait list. Um, however, we do try to offer folks on the waitlist services in the forms of like community workshops or um, skills development um, like workshops as well so that we because we recognize like when people call that's when they're ready that's when they're wanting help and that's when they need it that's when they need it so asking them to wait 12 sometimes at one point to 18 months is just far too long it's not reasonable over the years i've spoken with many healthcare providers who who treat eating disorders and they all say that they need more resources mm-hmm. this is your this is your cue and your opportunity to say that you need more resources but why do we have to keep saying that do you have any mm-hmm. thoughts on on why what what is perpetuating um, you know the need for more resources and and the seeming apathy 
at least in, in among decision makers when it comes to spending more money on, on, on what is an obvious need. And mm -hmm. we saw that it was an obvious need during the pandemic, particularly. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, part of the response to that is, again, viewing eating disorders in a really limited way as, um, you know, we think of maybe only a clinical eating disorder and we think of who that might impact and what that might look like and what that treatment might look like. But when we frame it as actually, you know, ruptured relationship to food and body, well, that impacts a lot of people, uh, a lot of people in different ways. And again, if we expanded our understanding of the quote unquote problem, then we would likely be more creative and we could expand our response to it. Again, I think there's a lot of work to be done in, uh, like, maybe the healthcare systems are also owning the fact and, and their role in perpetuating these harms. Um, and how so? How, how do they perpetuate it? Again, like that weight-based discrimination that comes up time and time again, especially towards individuals who identify as living in larger bodies. Um, but you're saying among health professionals, mm -hmm. not just society itself. Mm -hmm. As part of the show, as I, we spoke with Elaine Stevenson, who has advocated for more than three decades following the death of her daughter, Alyssa, who, who before her death and since her death, Alyssa had an eating disorder. She told me that apathy and meaningless words have led to gross inaction and paralysis by elected officials when it comes to treatment programs. Of course, you work inside the system, and you may not want to bite the hand that feeds you, but, but what do you think of that statement? Mm-hmm. Powerful words. Um, I think that um, you know there 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 has been been a lot of inaction. I think there's many different parts to that. Um, I think you know also when I reflect on funding that we recently received, just how we were able to utilize that and the positions that we were able to add, how we were able to you know create uh, workshops for providers and healthcare providers, and so I you know to maybe take a more hopeful spin on it, I guess I see the good that can come when we do value these programs and when we really view this as a systemic problem that we are all connected to. You know, perhaps if we were all more invested in it, um, that could shift a little bit because it's, and, and you know, ideally we could move to one day a place of, of being more proactive and preventative, teaching kids, you know, how to have a peaceful relationship with food and body um, instead of responding years later and trying to undo a lot of the really harmful messaging. So there's work to be done, but I'm also hopeful about what we could do um, if that shift takes place. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you so much. People like Julia Clausen are trying to make the funding they receive go as far as it can go. But a wait list of 12 months or more shows how underfunded they are and how steep is the uphill climb. We asked Manitoba's Department of Mental Health if they'll be offering more support for eating disorder programs in light of the long waits. A spokesperson said it's a priority for the government. And that in February, Manitoba will recognize its second Eating Disorder Awareness Week to increase awareness and available resources. But they didn't announce any new funding or services. That's our show this week. Our email address is whitecoat at cbc.ca. If you like this episode, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen. This week's episode was produced by Stephanie Dubois with help from Samir Chabra and Isabel Gallant. Our digital producer this week is Ruby Buiza. Our senior producer is Colleen Ross. 
That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.